And you can turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We are starting a new book this morning in the Gospel of Mark, and the plan is to go right through this book, possibly pausing uh, for a few other short messages, series of messages, but we'll be in Mark for the, the foreseeable future. So let's begin by reading just the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Our God, we pray that you would give us the ability to understand these words, not just in our minds, but that you would give us also the ability to perceive the glory of the truth in this text. We pray that you would give us the, the miracle of repentance, the miracle uh, that enables us to, to see our sin for what it is and to respond appropriately and to be truly prepared to receive Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. The enjoyment of any gift depends to a large extent on the heart of the one that receives it. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, many, I'm guessing many, of us, if not most of us, at some point have received a gift that we didn't totally appreciate. Maybe our our parents had a a funny idea or they had this great idea. They thought we'd love some sort of gift for Christmas or our birthday. And we opened it and we we faked some excitement out of, to be polite. But really in our heart, it was not what we wanted. It was not what we wanted. Um... Mark is unique to the other gospel writers in that he he doesn't have this lengthy introduction like Matthew or Luke, this big birth narrative, or John, his lengthy prologue. Mark just wants to throw us right into the life of Christ. But, But even though he wants to just throw us into the action, and the gospel of Mark is a gospel of action primarily, he still wants us to be prepared to to introduce us to Christ. He he knows and God knows that we can't properly learn about Christ unless we really understand why he came, uh, what his message is. And so being able to benefit from the gospel or any biblical instruction, it's dependent on a certain heart attitude. And that's why God sent John the Baptist first to the Jews to prepare them for the Messiah. Just a few comments on, on Mark himself. 
like the other Gospels, it doesn't say by Mark. And so we could ask, how do we know who wrote this? Well, uh, the, the early church was unanimous in saying that the, the companion of Peter, Mark, who's mentioned several times in the New Testament, actually wrote this gospel. And this fits with all the internal evidence that we can, we can see here. Um, the early church said that Peter was in Rome during his later ministry years, and Mark was his assistant. Uh, they called him his interpreter. And so Mark, John Mark, was listening to Peter's preaching in Rome, and Mark recorded that preaching. And so we shouldn't be too nervous that, uh, that this was written by someone that wasn't an apostle. It was a, a close companion of Peter. And so it's basically Peter's gospel account is what's in this book. That's interesting, isn't it? Because Mark, for those of you who know Acts, was he, did he have a stellar track record as a disciple? No, actually he went out with the apostle Paul and Barnabas, and before they even got to one of the major first stops on the journey, he already, he abandoned them and went back to mom in Israel. To the extent that Paul, when, it, when he wanted to go on another journey after that, he ended up splitting with Barnabas because he didn't want to take this, this lousy disciple along with him. Paul didn't trust Mark for a long time after that because he abandoned the mission. And then Peter uh, had a very similar failing, didn't he? Uh, in the greatest hour of need, the greatest hour of trial, uh, when Christ was being tried by the Jewish Sanhedrin at night, uh, three times someone asked Peter, do you, do you know who Jesus is? Weren't you with him? Weren't you one of his disciples? He said, no. And he even cursed and he swore that he didn't know him. And so that, that's interesting. This gospel is written by these two men. Uh, and in this gospel, we see that theme of discipleship. And Mark, more than any other gospel, more than any other gospel, it portrays the weakness of the disciples. That they are just constantly puzzled. Jesus is doing all these miracles and the disciples they don't, they don't get it. Uh, we'll read multiple times that they had a hardened heart as a result of seeing all these miracles being so close to Jesus. And that's really my burden for you because I know that, that not all of us, the moment we were saved, um, not all of us um, totally get it. We could still be in the fog a bit about who Jesus is. What does it mean to be a disciple? Um, does it mean I, I, I sit in church and, and I read the Bible once in a while and that's a disciple? Or is there more to the story? Or what, what about Jesus? Who exactly is Jesus? Uh, what exactly is his message? What, what did he actually do? How did he live? And so that's my burden for you. Um, the past several weeks, there's been a big emph emphasis on the comforting for the believer and, and that's a, a great doctrine, and I hope you were encouraged by that doctrine of God's providence, him caring for the believer. But Mark is going to shake things up a little bit, and this is a great gospel to go through. One, if you don't know Christ, of course, uh, but also if you are just confused what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this text, 
these first eight verses of Mark are urging us and urging you to prepare your heart for Christ in several ways. The first way that we need to be prepared for Christ is to recognize his deity. Recognize his deity. Uh, In some places and in some even Christian religions and cults, the deity of Christ is hotly debated. Uh, It's hotly debated. Was he really God? he, He didn't say the literal words, I am God, therefore he can't be God. Well, I think there's no need to have any kind of tedious arguments about the deity of Christ. I mean, look at, look at just the first few verses of Mark. How does Mark begin? He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And who is he? He is the Son of God. That word and that phrase, Son of God, to the Jews would have communicated a very clear message. In John chapter 5, it says, the Jews were seeking to kill him, Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, so they thought, but he was also calling God his own father. And what does that mean? Making himself equal with God. And so when the phrase son of God is used to describe Jesus in the Bible, that means he's he's God. He's God in the flesh. He's equal in power and glory with God the Father. But his identity as the son of God will not be fully recognized by the people in this gospel until the crucifixion. And the climax of Mark is the centurion at the very end that exclaims, truly this man was God's son. But aside from him, the only other people that recognize who Jesus is as the son of God are demons. Those are actually the first people in Mark that recognize who Jesus is. And then aside from them, God the Father himself Uh, testifies publicly twice that Jesus is his son. So Jesus is God. First, he's called the son of God. But second of all, look at this quotation. So in your Bible, these first two verses, uh, verses two and three, they might be in a different font. And that's just telling you this is a quote from the Old Testament. And if we look back in the Old Testament, uh, we would see that this is actually two different quotes. Malachi chapter three, and Isaiah 40. And in both cases, God is telling his people that there will be a forerunner who will go before him, God, when he comes. And look at verse 3. It says, make ready the way of the Lord. Um, The way of the Lord. If you go back to Isaiah 40, you would see that literally it says, make ready the way of Yahweh, that, that covenant name for God in the Old Testament. And so John the Baptist is coming, preparing the way, but, but for who? For a good teacher? It's not for a good teacher. It's for Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord of the Old Testament. And so Jesus is God, number two, because he is equated with God in the Old Testament. And then finally, Jesus must be God because he is the bestower of God's spirit. Look at verse 8. It says that the Messiah will come and baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine Moses saying that? Moses will baptize you with God's Spirit. Uh, No, only God can grant his Spirit. So Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He's equivalent to Yahweh, and he's the giver of God's own Spirit. That's just a few proofs to the deity of Christ. 
And Mark wants us to pick up on that. Uh, that we have not, we're not really ready for Christ. We're not really ready to, to meet him or receive him or understand him unless we understand that he is truly God incarnate, God the Son in the flesh. Now turn your attention from him a moment and take a look at, at yourself. Um, let's look at what John the Baptist was doing here. Uh, there, he's fulfilling these prophecies from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 of, of a man who would come to prepare the way for God, for the Messiah. And he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God's people have always had this problem throughout history. Uh, they've always had the problem that they just assume because they identify with some some form of biblical religion that they're ready. That they're ready for God to meet them. They're ready to meet God. That they're okay spiritually. But even Isaiah, uh, he's the first, he's one of the, the people quoted, the prophets quoted here in verse 3, uh, were the people ready in Isaiah's day? No, if you were to read Isaiah, you would read this in the very first chapter of Isaiah. God speaking. Alas, sinful nation, people heavy with guilt, seed of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have become estranged from Him. That's the diagnosis. And what did God say to them? He, he threatened them. He said, if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Those are pretty harsh words. But that's why we need this call to be prepared. We can't flatter ourselves that we're ready just because, you know, back then they were Jewish, just because they went to the temple occasionally. What about Malachi? Uh, if you flip back to Malachi, it's worth doing. It's right before Matthew. So it's the last book in the Old Testament. It's, it's just two pages before the beginning of Matthew. And it says, this is the quote that, uh, that Mark is using. In Malachi 3 verse 1, it says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, before God. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, so the Messiah, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? That's a good question. Uh, Malachi, if we were to read and just survey that book, we would see why that call is so necessary to be prepared for the Messiah. Were the people prepared in Malachi's day? They weren't in Isaiah's day. Maybe by Malachi's day, that 300-year period between 700 and 400 BC, maybe they had reformed a bit. Well, this is what God says to them in Malachi to the Jews. He says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. So they, they thought everything was fine, but what were they doing in their worship? Uh, God you remember, he wanted the best. So the Jews, they worshipped, part of their worship was actually presenting animals and sacrificing animals at the temple. 
as, a way, as, a, as an acknowledgement of their sin and the need for their sin to be washed away with a sacrifice. But instead of presenting the best things on the altar, they brought the, the sick hundred-year-old goat or the, the three-legged uh, ox or, or etc. And God said, no, I have a controversy with you. It's not okay. Just because you come to the temple, just because you do certain religious things, I'm not okay with you. Second, he said, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction, speaking to the priests. And they were supposed to be the teachers in Israel. They were the pastors in Israel. And he said, you've corrupted the pure teaching of God's word that I gave you and to minister to my people. Third, he said, you have dealt treacherously with your wife. Probably the most persistent sin in, in, in cultures throughout, throughout the world. The, the greatest inner issue, we would say, is pride to some extent or idolatry. But in the outward sense, what, what people usually drive their he, drag their heels in or dig their heels in more than anything is sexual sin. And these, these Jews in Malachi's time were no different. I mean, they weren't living in flagrant immorality, but they knew God cared about marriage, but they, they created all these loopholes. Oh, so convenient. Uh, much like many of us today, many loopholes around this idea of sexual sin and marriage. Finally, he, he rebuked the Jews. He said, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Alluding to their, their failure to tithe. So in the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to tithe, to bring a tenth of their, uh, what God had given them, had prospered for them with their, their harvest and, and all of that. And they were supposed to give a tenth to God. And he said, no, you're robbing me. You, will a man rob God? And so what did he say to them? He said, when the Messiah comes, don't flatter yourself that you're ready for his coming. He said, quote, who can endure the day of his coming? Every worker of wickedness will be chaff, like dry hay, and the day that is coming will set them aflame. Pretty severe warning to the Jews of Malachi's day. Well, what about the church? Uh, the, the Jews, we know it was a mixed group. It was a mixed group. There were many believing Jews, but there were also Many we know that were just hypocrites and people that had no interest in worship. But the church is different, isn't it? It's, it's made up of believing people. That's the New Testament church. Well, by, by the second generation, after the first apostles, after the apostles, we see that the churches are also already starting to decay. Revelation 2 and 3 are, contain seven letters from Christ to specific churches that are just a few decades removed from when Jesus ascended into heaven, from when the apostles walked the earth and John was still alive at this time, the apostle John, not John the Baptist, different John. This is what Christ said to them, to a church. This is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Imagine that, a church being called to repent. Some of us aren't comfortable with that. That's something you say to, to an unbeliever. 
He said, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I am coming. And so this is, the, this is the illustration. The illustration that we have, the picture we have in Mark, those first two verses in Mark, it's of an approaching king. So notice it says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In the ancient world, when a king was going to visit a nation or a land, he would send a, a herald ahead of him. He would send an ambassador of some sort or a group, one, to make sure the road was fit to travel on, and if it wasn't, to muster people and, and to, to get to work to make sure it was appropriate. It was an appropriate road for the king to travel on. But second, they would cry out to all the villages and towns so that the people were prepared to receive the king. So that they knew, oh, I will be here. When the king is here, I'll make sure I'm not on a journey somewhere. I'll make sure I'm not busy somewhere else. I'll be here to meet the king when he approaches. And so that is the picture that we're given. And that's the ministry of John the Baptist. When he spoke to the Jews of that day, he, he was calling them to examine themselves. To say, don't flatter yourself that you're, that you're just religious. You do a couple religious things. Uh, that you have a Bible, that you, you know, wear a cross, that you do all these, these outward um, works. But are you really prepared for Christ? What, what kind of road will Christ find with you, with your heart? Uh, what mountains need to be leveled? What valleys need to be filled? What boulders need to be removed out of the road? Uh, today is the day. Now is the time to be ready for Christ, ready to receive Christ, either by learning more about him or even his physical return one day we will need to be ready for him. And so maybe that's not us. Maybe, maybe we're thinking, you know, it doesn't take me a long time to acknowledge, yeah, I am not, I am not ready. I don't think I am ready. What do I do? What do I do if I know that uh, I am just like those Jews of Isaiah's day or Malachi's day or even these pathetic churches of the first century? What do we do? Well, let's look at what John the Baptist called the Jews of his time to do. What did, what did he do? Well, he's called John the Baptist. So he was into baptism at some point. Uh, baptism was very important for him. So to him, it wasn't just this secret, you know, how do I respond to this message? How do I respond to the preaching of the gospel? Well, it's not just this secret, personal thing. No, what, what was happening? What was he calling people to do? He was calling them to be publicly baptized in the wilderness. Not in the temple. Not in the religious center. He was a guy that wore camel's hair and ate bugs. This crazy man out in the desert. Oh, we're supposed to go out to him. He's going to baptize me. Well, yeah, he called the Jews to be baptized as a, as a physical and outward symbol of the, the washing from sin that they needed. They were, they were being called to acknowledge, I need to be washed from my sin. Uh, just because I'm Jewish doesn't mean I'm forgiven by God. He called them to repent so they would submit to his baptism 
as a, as a way to testify that they agreed with his message and that they had indeed repented in their heart and in their own life. And so what is repentance? Well, first, it's, it's the only proper response to the demands of the gospel. Um, the gospel is a demand. So when the gospel is preached, a, a demand is being preached. That's why we, we use the word preaching. And we don't use the word sharing or even teaching that's appropriate in other settings. Look at the words that are used for the, for the man John the Baptist. In verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That word crying is a, is a word that's restricted to an emotionally charged shout. Uh, it's, it's the word used to describe Christ's cry to God. Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It, it's the word used to describe the, uh, the desperate plea of fathers and mothers that met Jesus and begged him to save their little boy or their little girl to heal them or to cast out a demon from them. It's also used as a, of a lion roaring. So imagine that. When you heard John the Baptist preach, you wouldn't have heard anything like this guy before this point. I mean, he looked the part and he sounded the part. Uh, he didn't flatter anyone. He was even beheaded because he criticized a king. You remember that? Herod and his, his illegal marriage. Uh, that's how John the Baptist met his, his end and was martyred. But this man was, was roaring. He was preaching. The word preach is used two other times in this passage. Uh, the gospel, it's like a sledgehammer. So it's not this sappy invitation. We just want to invite you to come. And, and, you know, if today is not the day for you, well, that's okay. You know, we'll pray for you and blah, blah, blah. No, that's not how John the Baptist preached. He demanded that people respond to it. And how did they need to respond? They needed to respond with repentance. Repentance is a radical turning of the heart that results in a transformed life. Okay, that's what repentance is. It's a radical turning in the inner man, in the heart, that results in a transformed life. It is not penance, like the Catholic Church teaches. It's not lighting candles and going to confessional booth and works like that in praying prayers. No, it, it's a heart attitude primarily before it's anything else. Repentance is something that occurs in the heart. But yeah, it needs to result in works that accompany that in fruits in keeping with repentance. You know, repentance is occurring in someone when there is a new hatred for sin. So what they, what they used to love what they used to cherish, there is all of a sudden this strong aversion and hatred for that same thing, for that same object of their affection. That results in sorrow because they hate something that is in their heart that they can't rip out by themselves. Uh, and so it grieves them. There's a deep sorrow. There's a godly sorrow that accompanies true repentance. This never stays internal uh, this never stays as just this secret heart attitude. It always results in confession of sin, in public confession of sin. 
Look again at the picture. They were being baptized by John in verse 5 in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So they were, they were not just silent. They weren't just doing this in this big line, baptizing rows and rows of people. No, these people were just instinctively confessing their sins publicly. And many of us, if we've been in the church for any period of time, we've seen baptism happen, and people, yeah, they confess some stuff. Uh, they don't, we don't want to be graphic uh, at those times, but, but that is appropriate in, in many places. When Paul was preaching in Ephesus, they were really into magic, and people had thousands and thousands of dollars worth of magic books. And so what did repentance look like for them? Well, these people all took up all their books and they burned them in a huge pile in the middle of the city. And I once saw someone that uh, not too long ago that was baptized, she confessed to being a witch, that she was actually a modern-day witch into spells, into the occult, into all sorts of, of things. And that's becoming more popular today. But she confessed that. I read Revelation, at the end of Revelation, she said, and I saw that the sorcerers were going to be cast into the lake of fire. And I repented when I read that. I heard another man who was baptized. He confessed to being a false teacher. He said, I was a pastor, and I preached health and wealth. I preached the prosperity gospel. And he, he repented of that sin publicly. Another man confessed to being a thief that he stole from specific people. And so that's what John the Baptist called these people, how he called them to respond. That's how God calls us to respond. Uh, Not in John's baptism. There is a difference between his baptism and Christian baptism. The Messiah was not yet revealed. And so to be baptized by John, you would just have to confess your sin and repent of your sin and you could be baptized by him. Uh, But as a Christian today, baptism is a symbol that you have been spiritually resurrected uh, by the Holy Spirit. You've been born again, but also that you are confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, You are being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian confession. And so the obvious, what's the obvious question for us today? Have you responded to the gospel? Okay, you, you may think you have, and, and you may have in the, in the sense of that word, in the internal sense and um, in your heart, but have you really confessed that in the way that God calls you to? And so God calls us to what? He calls us to be baptized. Um, if we are committed to Christ, if we are truly repentant from our sin, we will submit ourselves to Christian baptism. Baptism will not save you. I'll be the first to say that, that there's nothing saving in baptism. And if you were going to argue that based on this passage, well, he was baptizing them, uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So yeah, the baptism must have produced the forgiveness of sins, like some teach. Well, that is so opposite to the whole context, because that's what the Jews taught. They taught you're saved, we're all saved by our good works and our ritual washings. They loved washing themselves ritually. But the whole point of John's baptism was that none of that stuff can save you. 
And so, true, Christian baptism will not save you. But let me just, let me just put it like this. I doubt the reality of your conversion if you understand what baptism is and you know that you have not been baptized as a, as a Christian and you're still not willing to do that. I doubt the reality of your salvation. Um, the church today has largely replaced baptism with the sinner's prayer. And so in, in many churches, people will give you an assurance of salvation if you've prayed a little prayer. Oh, uh, do you want to become a Christian? Yeah. Oh, well, I have this prayer here. Uh, read this, and, and then you read it, and then I pray for you, and I say, well, go your way. You are saved. You are saved. Um, that is not, that's not biblical. Uh, God does want there to be a, a sort of defining moment in your life when you confess Christ, but that's baptism. That's not a, the sinner's prayer. That's when a, a church, a true faithful church, uh, listens to your testimony and, and helps you sort through the reality of your, of your faith and your repentance. And yet the church should be able to say, you know, we, you know, we know you're not, at, you haven't arrived as a believer. We know you're not fully mature as a Christian. You may be a little confused about a few things, but we do agree. You are a believer, and we want to baptize you in front of the whole church as you confess Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And so that's what we're about here. Uh, we teach believers baptism, and that's just a question for us. Have I been baptized as a believer? Even though it's not the exact same thing as John's baptism, it's a very appropriate question to ask as we're going through this text. And so we need to prepare in a few ways so far we've seen. We need to recognize Christ's identity. Second, we need to really ask the question, am I, am I not just religious, but am I truly repentant? Am I truly ready to receive Christ? And then third, to publicly repent. Uh, to do that. But fourth, we also need to abandon false religion. Notice that John was not a leading light in the, the temple religion in Israel. The Pharisees and the scribes and the elders and the chief priests, uh, where, did they, where were they expecting the Messiah to appear? They, they were probably expecting him to appear from their own ranks, and if he had a forerunner, well, maybe one of them would be the forerunner or maybe one of their children. But, but no, it was God chose this man who lived in the desert, the wild man eating bugs. Um, he was totally disconnected with the popular form of religion of his time. Uh, he was not at the top of the religious hierarchy. He was the, and complete, the complete opposite. And many of, many of those people rejected him as a prophet. They rejected him. And so God, when, when he was calling the people to prepare, he was calling them away from Jerusalem. He was calling them to leave Jerusalem. Now, this religion in Jerusalem has become corrupted. The Messiah is not going to come here. Uh, the forerunner to the Messiah is not going to come here. He's in the wilderness. He'll be wearing camel's hair a leather belt. Uh, he'll be eating locusts and wild honey. He'll be so uh, passionate, so, so authoritative that people will criticize him and say he must be demon-possessed. The, the teachers of that time 
they, they didn't preach, really. They just, they commented, and they would say, well, Rabbi Hillel says this, but Rabbi Shimei says this, and, and the, all these other rabbis say this, and you, you would kind of walk out of the synagogue pretty confused. Well, I know what a lot of rabbis have said about all sorts of things, but I'm not too sure about anything God has said. There was authority was totally absent from many of the, the teaching situations there. And so God was calling them outside the popular religious center of the day. Uh, Jesus told the Jews, you are experts at nullifying the word of God. Uh, and so just a few examples of, of why God condemned the religion of the Jews at that time. Two examples would be they had a million loopholes for getting out of marriage. Yeah, we love marriage, but if my wife doesn't do exactly what I expect, she's gone, or vice versa. But usually the men were, had more power, and so it was, ended up being them uh, trading wives, basically. Uh, no different from the grossest forms of immorality <clears throat> in many cultures. That's what they did. Uh, but what is, what is the dominant religion of our culture? Well, th- that's a hard question to ask. Because there's a lot of cults, there's lots of religions, and uh, lots of people have different philosophies. But, but I think they all are tied together. I think there is a common thread uh, running through all the popular forms of religion of our time. And so what's God's, what's God's number one commandment? Well, it's love God with all your heart and all your strength with all your mind. Uh, but the creed of our culture is what? Love thyself with all thy heart. And even though it looks different, that's what every other religion will teach you. Whether it's popular psychology, whether it's other religions, whether it's just secularism, uh, self-love that's totally empty of any hope, any lasting hope. The common thread is the elevation of self. Um, We have to be honest. All roads, like many say, all roads lead to God of some sort. It's what a lot of our family members will tell us over Christmas when we start getting religious on them. Well, yeah, all roads lead to the same place. Well, Jesus said all roads lead to hell. Except one, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. To find the true religion, to find God's truth, You'll have to leave the popular center. You'll have to leave the crowd. You'll have to go into the so-called wilderness where there's just a couple people there. There's only a few people that have found it. Uh, if you want to be popular, if you, want, if you want to be part of the most popular movements, you'll always end up in error. You'll end up in false religion, whatever form that might take. So there's no hope in man-made religions. Uh, We have to look elsewhere. But finally, we need to prepare for the coming of of the Messiah, uh, whether he comes tonight or whether there will be many decades where we're just constantly seeking him while he's still physically absent from us. Uh, We need to prepare ourselves by confessing our need of the Spirit. In verse 7, he says, John the Baptist, this is the only thing Mark says, reports that John the Baptist said. We know he said more than this, but Mark chooses to only quote verses 7 and 8 to give us a sense of John the Baptist's preaching. He says, 
After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so we need to prepare by confessing our need of the Spirit. So what did John the Baptist say? He didn't say, well, you need to repent and start, you know, tomorrow. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and keep all 500 and some odd laws in the Old Testament. No, he was preaching. He was, he was the first one to admit that he had nothing to author people, offer people. Uh, the baptism that he offered was totally lacking in what you ultimately need, what your deepest need is. Uh, your deepest need is not just small moral reform. It's not just a, a fresh commitment to try to do better, try to improve yourself. Uh, the, the, your greatest need is to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that is, that is equivalent to saying to become a Christian. And so we teach that spirit baptism occurs the moment of conversion. This is not a, a second blessing where you start speaking in tongues. No, none of that, okay? Uh, this is synonymous with con- conversion. This occurs when someone believes in Christ, this side of Pentecost. And so what does that mean? We need, okay, I don't need to just slightly clean up my act or try to do better, or change my desires, I need to actually be immersed in the Holy Spirit in the third person of the Trinity. The picture, therefore, of us without the Holy Spirit is a barren wilderness where there's no life whatsoever. Uh, The Holy Spirit is unique. He's the, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, just like Christ and God the Father. But the Holy Spirit is unique in that he is the life-giving power of God. So God the Father, he plans and decrees. God the Son speaks it into existence. And then God the Holy Spirit actually effects the life-giving miracle. And so at the creation of the world, there was a barren wilderness on our planet. But the Holy Spirit created life with his sheer power. And that's the picture of us. Uh, we, have, we have nothing. I mean, a repentant person, repentance is not about uh, celebrating your reforms. It's about mourning and lamenting your inability to reform. It's prostrating yourself before God and confessing that there is nothing good in me. I can't change. I can't change apart from a miracle, apart from the Holy Spirit. You need Christ to give you the Holy Spirit. Notice that, that Christ, the Messiah, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in the soul is so dramatic and so life-changing that it's called a second birth. And that's where we get the phrase born-again Christian. As you're not just a religious person, you're not just a, a religious Christian, but no, you've actually been born again the desires that you know you should have but couldn't muster up in yourself, God actually performed a miracle in your soul and produced godly desires that were totally absent from the day you were born up till that moment of conversion. 
Uh, God must grant repentance, and he grants that through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the, the question for us. Uh, are we prepared for Christ? Uh, it, the question is not, oh, have you arrived at the state of Christian perfection? And so, okay, now you are a welcome disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you're ready. No, uh, we are ready to learn more about Christ through the Gospel of Mark. We are ready for the Lord to return if we are repentant, if we have confessed our sin, uh, if we have mourned over our sin, if we hate our sin, and we have really broken with it in the heart. If we've broken with our sin in the heart, because that's what Christ is going to, to say to us through the Gospel of Mark. As we go through, and we even see his first recorded words in Mark, it's all about sin. It's all about salvation from sin. And so if, we, if that doesn't concern us, well, I don't, I don't totally get why people love Jesus so much. Well, it's probably because you don't understand why people care about sin so much. Because that's what Jesus comes to address, is our issue of sin and our need of a Savior. Are you prepared to learn more about Jesus? Uh, the answer depends on what you are choosing to love, on what you're choosing to love today, and what you're choosing to hate. If you love sin, it is not surprising at all that you don't love Jesus. doesn't surprise me in the least. But that's our prayer for you, is that you would love the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit would enable you uh, to perceive his worth and his glory. And so I'm looking forward to going through Mark and seeing exactly what Christ did and what he said and to learn from him with you. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel, that it addresses our deepest need, our, our need of salvation from sin. And we all pray for those of us who are in a fog, about who Jesus is, for those of us who are in a fog about what it means to be a disciple, and even those who may hate Jesus and not care for him at all, uh, we confess that we were once the same. Uh, that if, if works were, good works were the standard, uh, we would be the first ones thrown into hell. Uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a miracle in all the people here and in the people that are not here. We pray for uh, a miraculous uh, love for Christ to be produced in our hearts. We pray that you would enable us to, to hate sin and to mourn over sin and to be grieved by our sin so that we can truly appreciate the gift of your Son. And we pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.